Let's pray. Heavenly Father, open our hearts and minds that we might take in what we need to hear from you this morning, that it might bless us and be life and health and peace to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today I want to do a sermon by answering three questions. And the first of those questions about our Exodus reading from Exodus 19 and 20 is this. Why does God use such frightening signs of his presence when he comes to Sinai? Why does God come down in fire, in smoke, earthquake, thunder and lightning? Verse 16, on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Why doesn't God come down in like showers of light and fountains of water and butterflies and flower petals and piping flutes? Why is it so fierce, apparently? If he is goodness and love, why the smoke and fire? This is a bit primitive, a bit negative. The encounter with God that Israel has here at Mount Sinai, which we read about, is a fundamental and formative experience for them. And fundamental and formative experiences can be intense. Indeed, they're often deliberately intense. Think about an army boot camp or an SAS training exercise. To grow and to be changed, we must be tested. It teaches us this testing. It shapes and changes us. And often this kind of intense and formative experience involves having to confront something fearful and discovering that we can survive, even prevail, despite the apparently fearsome thing we face. Whether it's standing up to a bully or perhaps overcoming a phobia by exposing yourself slowly but surely to what you fear, the fearsome signs of God's presence may be a little like this. They're not to scare Israel away. Indeed, the Israelites, although they trembled in their camp, they could not cower in their tents or run for the hills. They had to come out and go towards the mountain. Verse 17, Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. And up close, it remained intimidating. Reading on in verse 18, Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. And after God speaks, the whole thing seems too much to bear. If we skip down to after the commandments in verse 18 of chapter 20, when the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us or we will die. Now, Moses says to this in verse 20 of chapter 20, don't be afraid. Meaning, take courage. Don't despair. God has not come to destroy you. He has another purpose. 
God, says Moses, has come to test you. Meaning God has come to try you, to stress you, to train you, to strengthen and form you. Because God has called this ordinary rabble, these liberated slaves, to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They need to be shaped by their encounter with God. To be fit for that calling, to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, they need to know that, firstly, they need to know that God clothes himself in fire, in storm and earthquake. For he is a kind of holy inferno that threatens to engulf whatever is unholy and that comes too near. This is true. But they also need to know this. We stood before the smoking, shaking mountain and we were not consumed. The living God spoke to us and we did not die. He came to make a way that we might dwell with him and he with us. He came to make a covenant that means he is with us and he is for us. This is a powerful and positive experience. Moses goes on to say that God has come clothed in fire so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. For sin is toxic to the project that God has recruited Israel for. If they are to be a kingdom of priests and holy nation, then they must think twice, three times, four times about neglecting God, about defying God, about betraying or failing God. And this is not just for their own sake. Israel are to be God's priests for the sake of all nations. A kingdom of priests is a kingdom to serve as priests for the world. A holy nation is a holy nation among the nations. God is calling and forming Israel to be a channel of divine blessing to the world. Israel needed impressed upon their hearts and their minds both the wonderful possibilities of knowing and serving the living God and the terrible possibilities of falling short of that high calling. God uses such fearsome signs of his presence to instill in Israel both hope, hope that we can dwell even with the holy God, but also reverence. He is the holy God and not to be trifled with. That's the first question. Here's the second question. How can it be right for God to be a jealous God? When God speaks, he gives the famous Ten Commandments. And the first group of those commandments are focused on how Israel are to treat him so as to honour him. And God's first requirement is that no other gods are to be worshipped except him. Chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And the reason that God gives for excluding all rivals is in verse 5, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, we are perhaps pretty ambivalent about jealousy. Uh, It's either perhaps a word we use like we use the word envy, 
to mean a kind of resentful wanting for ourselves what others have. Or we might more properly use jealousy to mean possessiveness, an unwillingness to share. At worst, kind of desire to own and to control. That is sometimes an inappropriate and ugly thing. The most acceptable form of jealousy, perhaps, would be jealousy for the loyalty of a husband or wife. For if marriage is to work, it requires an exclusive loyalty. The pattern of marriage is found in Adam and Eve. One man, one woman, one flesh. A man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And what God has joined together, says Jesus, let no one put asunder. You might think, well, what about all the polygamy in the Old Testament? Well, read the stories. Polygamy produces rivalry, pain and injustice. It is not in keeping with God's intention for marriage. For the kind of open and complete and lasting self-giving that is needed to produce the true fruits of marriage demands an exclusive loyalty. And such a failure of such loyalty certainly weakens and may well destroy a marriage. And so it is also between God and his people. If our relationship to God is to work, it requires an exclusive loyalty. If Israel is to be this kingdom of priests and holy nation, they must be all in for God and for no one else. They must have an undivided heart for him. But you might say, well, why is God's jealousy so intense, so punitive? Verse 5, you shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Now, we should be clear, this is not the vengeful lashing out of a wounded ego. Maybe in human uh, circumstances this can happen, but God cannot be wounded. He is bigger than that. Rather, this is about a warning to what is at stake for us if we hate God and prefer to make for ourselves an image in the form of something in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. For when people worship and serve the things that they see in heaven above or on earth or in the waters, that is, when we worship and serve created things, it distorts us, it destroys us in the end. For the created things that people idolise end up being things like prosperity or strength and power or romantic love or beauty or health or perhaps darker gods like tribe or race or the very notion, very act of destruction These days, we can idolise ourselves. People might say, you have the power and you have the right to make yourself, to change yourself, to save yourself. Look within for truth, 
for freedom, for love. Be your own God, if you like. Now, all of these gods who are deifications of aspects of the created world are not gods. They cannot speak or act. They do not know you or love you. Drinking from their wells will make you only thirstier. Because we are looking for things in love, in success, in knowledge. We are looking for something, something we want, something our heart goes after. We're looking for it in health. We're looking for it in political ideology. We're looking for it in our own kind of authentic free actions, our own choices. We're looking for it in leisure. We're looking for it in wealth. We're looking for it in domestic bliss. We're looking for this thing, this thing which we seek in all of these things, but it cannot be found in those things. Because the thing we seek is God. The true God, the living God, the one God. And if those other created things, if they are our aim and our end, our gods, we will end up disappointed. At best, destroyed, eaten at worst. Only by loving the Lord who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, only by loving that one, will we and a thousand generations to follow know the one thing we really need, which is God, the love of God, the one who knows us and who loves us. So it is right, actually, for God to be jealous, to be possessive about the loyalty we might give him, we should give him, to require from us our exclusive worship and service, because this is where our true good lies. Other gods will eat us. They don't know, love, or bless us in the end. The third question I have is, do we have to keep these commandments, these ten commandments? This question provoked a lively discussion in my Bible study this week. Uh, On the one hand, I would say, we Christians are not Israelites. Uh, Hebrews 12, addressing Christians, says, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them. The writer of the Hebrews says to Christians, that's not the mountain we have come to. Christ has set us free from the obligation to keep the law, the old covenant, the Old Testament. Instead, we have been adopted as God's children through faith in Jesus Christ. And we live by the Spirit and not by the written code. So Romans chapter six verse sorry, chapter seven, verse six. We've been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. Or as Hebrews twelve goes on to put it, you Christian, you haven't come to the old mountain, the burning with fire mountain, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, 
the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And so Christians don't keep the Sabbath, that is, the seventh day, Saturday. But we do meet for church, rather, on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. And so there is a real and deep and true sense in which we are not bound by these commandments in the same way that ancient Israel was. On the other hand, isn't it obvious that we are obliged to what these commandments direct us to in some manner? We are not free to worship other gods or to misuse God's name. We are not free to murder or to commit adultery or to steal nor to bear false witness, nor covet. When Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart, we don't say, oh, well, Jesus was a Jew, and he was talking to Jews, and so things are different with us Christians. No, we know that what Jesus says It applies to us. And so Paul writes, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. And so the Christian standard is that sex is for marriage. Not before marriage, not outside marriage. And so the Ten Commandments, with their standards, remain our mentors and our friends. John Calvin, the Reformation theologian, says of the Ten Commandments, here is the best instrument for Christians to learn more thoroughly each day the nature of the Lord's will to which they aspire and to confirm in them their understanding of it. And he goes on to say, by frequent meditation upon God's law, the servant of God will be aroused to obedience, strengthened in it and drawn back from the slippery path of transgression. And in light of that, perhaps this week is a good week to meditate on a commandment or two each day that we might better follow God's call that we in Christ should live a holy life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us not to ignore your voice, but to attend to it with every ounce of our heart and mind and soul and strength that we might learn from you who you are, what you call us to be, how you call us to live, what is good in your sight, that we might conform our lives to it, even as we belong to Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.